Listener Production. Before we get into today's episode, just a heads up that this one does discuss eating disorders in some detail. So if this could be triggering for you, you might want to give this one a miss. It also contains some adult language. So if you have little ears around, you might want to listen to this one with headphones. And if you or someone you know struggles with disordered eating, body image or related issues, you can call the Butterfly National Helpline on 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's 1-800-334673. This is Crafita Happy and I am your host, Cass Dunn. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist, a mindfulness meditation teacher, and of course, author of the Crappy to Happy books. In this show, I bring you conversations with interesting, inspiring, intelligent people who are experts in their field and who have something of value to share that will help you feel less crappy and more happy. Today, I am delighted to introduce you to someone I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the past couple of years. Ever since I picked up her memoir, Bad Yogi, in an airport, read it, loved it, told everybody that I know to read it, immediately got online to stalk the author on the internet. Her name is Alice Williams, and in the book, she documents the two years she spent undertaking her yoga teacher training while also working through a 12-step eating disorder recovery program. The blurb on the back of the book describes Bad Yogi as the healing memoir for people who hate healing memoirs, and I think that is very accurate. It is everything that Alice is, which is warm, honest, relatable, and honest to God, utterly hilarious. It is laugh out loud funny. In our conversation today, Alice shares what she really thought when she attended her first 12-step meeting, how her yoga teacher training complemented the work she was doing in recovery meetings, but also some of the problems that she sees with the spiritual bypassing that can occur in the wellness industry and how she ultimately overcame her binge eating disorder. I'm going to leave the rest of it to Alice to talk about in the way only Alice can. And I think that by the end of the episode, you will appreciate Alice Williams just as much as I do. Here is my conversation with Alice. Alice, welcome to Crappy to Happy. Thank you. I first got to know you when you wrote your book, a self-help memoir called Bad Yogi, a couple of years ago, absolutely loved it, have told everybody about it, lent it to my mum, she loved it as well, and she's not even the self-help type, but she bloody loved it, because it is laugh-out-loud funny while also being very personal and sharing your experience of working through an eating disorder. So you went through a yoga teacher training program at the same time as you were in formal sort of 12-step recovery programs for this eating disorder. And you talk about all of those experiences and share very openly and vulnerably, but also hilariously in this book, Bad Yogi. Can you tell me um, just a little bit about what led you to write this book? Um, Sure. Well, I, you know, you summed it up so well. I'd been working in a job in television and had had a kind of quarter life crisis. It was a pretty toxic environment. And that led me to, well, basically fall apart. I was pretty suicidal. I realised I had to change direction. I did what um, most middle-class white girls do maybe, which is start a um, yoga teacher training course. (laughs) Um, And through doing 
you know, we did hours and hours of yoga every day. And then through that really intense experience, it became pretty clear to me that I had a raging eating disorder, I should say. And so then I thought, Christ, I'm going to have to get treatment for that as well. So the book <laughs> was really the, the juxtaposition of doing that 12-step kind of hothouse treatment while doing the teacher training. And the two really fed into each other. They're very different approaches to recovery, healing, wellness. And I've always been a prolific diary keeper. And as part of our teacher trainings, we had to keep um, a journal about what the practice was doing, the philosophy, all that kind of stuff. And part of 12 step is that you journal your feelings and blah, blah, blah. And I got to, I guess, the end of the process. I mean, you never fully recover, but to a place where I felt like a bit more stable and healthy. And I thought, you know what? There's so much stuff in here that I would have needed to read when I was really starting out. Because when I started out in recovery, all the books were very um, serious and I think in self-help particularly it feels like you've got to do it the right way and you're not doing it the right way and these three steps and blah, blah. And I thought I just need, I need a companion on the journey. I need someone to laugh with, someone who's made the mistake, same mistakes that I have. And so I kind of really I tell people I wrote the book that I needed to have. I wrote the book that I needed to read while I was doing that recovery. And another thing I noticed um, when I was doing, I guess, the 12-step recovery work and the teacher training was a lot of memoirs were very, oh, I was so crap and now I'm really um, perfect now. And that wasn't my experience. It was very much two steps forward, one step back. And also this idea that one day we're perfectly healed. And I mean, I'm still a crazy nutbag, but I don't express that through food anymore, <laughs> thank God. And but for me, healing was really about embracing the crazy nutbagness rather than becoming this vanilla, perfect, white bikini-wearing wellness warrior. So, yeah, I, I kind of wrote the book I needed. And did a stellar job of that. And I think that there is so much to talk about. This is why I wanted to talk to you, but it's hard to know where to start. You, you know, you talk about this, they're very much about healing. And I was really curious to know from your experience, like where did you find a similarity, I guess, or complementary aspects of something pretty hardcore and confronting like 12 steps and something much more, I'm not going to say light, but sort of light on like yoga teacher training and where were they different? Like where what was your experience of doing those two things at the same time and sort of having that real-time comparison of these two different approaches to healing something that really needed to be healed, like something that was a real problem for you? That's such a great question. And it, I mean, there's so many parts to it. I should mention that the teacher training that I did, there are so many six-week courses on the internet or 30 days, or you go away for a weekend retreat and you come out a yoga teacher. This was the most immersive course I could find. It was two years full-time. Wow. The first year we were told we would just be working on ourselves. We would just be applying the yoga to ourselves. And the second year was about learning to teach other people. So there was very much this philosophy that you couldn't teach until you knew exactly what all the practices did to ourselves. So not just asana, but obviously meditation, the philosophy, um, pranayama, so you kind of had to go through those fires of initiation and it was very much, I mean, I don't know how much people know about yoga, but 
there's this concept of tapas, which is the fire that burns away the impurities. And it's this idea of baptism by fire that you really have to dive in and lose yourself in order to come out ready to help others. And I think that was a huge point of crossover in 12 step in that it's very much about stripping away all your illusions, all the things that you use to prop yourself up, all the denial and far outcast. It is absolutely horrific. It's messy. It's so painful. And I think that's where the two crossover again is that there's a really strong 12 step community and being with the same teacher trainees for two years, there was that sense of They call it Sangha, so it's a spiritual community. So there was a sense that you're going through this experience and you're being really held within a group. And I think I've also done a lot of therapy. I think that's where I found it really different to therapy because with therapy it's just you and, you know, I mean, you're a therapist, you and the therapist. And while that's terrific because you do need to get that nuance of your own personal history and your own personal story, there can still be that sense of isolation if I'm the only one going through this. So, yeah, I guess that's where they they were similar, but they're also very different. And one way that they complemented each other was that so much of addiction, and I've been in several different 12-step recovery groups, still am, <laughs> and so much of addiction is physical in that the craving is physical, even if it's a process addiction. So process addiction might be things like sex, shopping, to some aspects, there's aspects around food addiction, which is process driven. There's still physical tri- triggers. And yoga had taught me to slow down and notice what was going on in my body when I was triggered and also notice how I had trapped trauma within my body and how to release that so that I wasn't using food in this case to numb it. So in that sense, I found that 12 step would bring up a lot of issues, a lot of trauma, a lot of pain, and the yoga really helped me be with that physically in my body and release it physically. So I think the two go absolutely hand in hand. I find that really interesting. And that I've, what I find especially interesting, I am a therapist. I am also um, very well acquainted with how powerful meditation and yoga can be for healing. And I'm also doing yoga teacher training right now. Um, So mine is a six-month program. It's a 200-hour training, you know, so definitely not a two-year as intense as what it sounds like the experience was that you had. And I think the reason that I was interested to ask that question is because I was curious to know, I mean, I did a lot. I did life coaching. I was a life coach before I became a clinical psychologist. And I know that a lot of people came to me for coaching who in hindsight possibly could have used therapy, you know, but there was almost this avoidance of something that was perceived as, you know, too confronting or too challenging or not wanting to admit that the problem was as big as, as it was. And almost, and this is no disrespect to anybody, we'll go through our own process and our own journey, but, you know, almost looking for an alternative to the hard work, going down that sort of coachy wellness kind of path as an alternative to really facing a bigger problem head on. So uh, yeah, that's why I was interested to know how you found those two experiences or if you came across that yourself or if you see a bit of that yourself. There's absolutely that aspect in the wellness community. And I found, I still find that quite confronting um, in that 
one major difference I found with 12-step and wellness was, and I don't want to bag anyone, but the atmosphere I find sometimes in different wellness groups like yoga groups, um, spiritual communities, that kind of stuff, can be weirdly um, oppressive and I find it because there's this pressure to be love and light and grateful and high vibes only, that kind of stuff. And that can kind of, when you've got a group, I mean, I'm not an expert in group dynamics, but it can kind of feed off the other people. And depending on who's leading the group, I've definitely been in retreats where there's been a kind of sense that you're letting down the group or you're letting down the teacher if, if you bring in anything to, yeah, if you're not, not constantly reinforcing that this is the best thing in the world. And I know that people come to spiritual communities who do have trauma and, and you know, maybe that's not the place for them. And look, I think a lot of the practices in yoga and wellness are, are about feeling good, which is great. We all want to feel good, but they can be a little bit of a band-aid as well. And this idea of the spiritual bypass, whereas if you've got a problem or something going on, you just meditate your way through, om your way through, yoga your way through, and that will lift and release it. But in fact, a lot of our, and this is only my experience, I'm not a therapist, but I find that a lot of our our issues really do have deep roots and are relational. And unless we kind of dig them up and examine them, we're just going to repeat them. And the weird thing is that if you do, I found that if you do go to yoga groups or wellness groups to have that spiritual bypass to feel good, you get to a point where you can only actually relate to other people in the yoga community or the wellness community And there's this sense that you can only breathe the same air as other people who are kind of high vibes only, that anyone else might pollute you. And I think if you are really grounded in your own sense of self with a deep understanding of your own own issues, your own triggers, and an acceptance of those things, it shouldn't matter where you are you will be okay, you will be safe. You know, there's that saying, it's not about, recovery is not about stopping the wave, it's about learning to surf. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we try and purify ourselves to the point where we can we can literally only live in an ashram because the rest of the world is too harsh. And it's not to say we should stay in toxic environments at all, but the aim is to be grounded enough that it doesn't affect us as deeply as if we're so pure, we can only kind of meditate the day away, otherwise we're shattered. I know that there will be people listening who, you know, as soon as we mention issues with food, eating disorder, that you recovered from an eating disorder, there are plenty of people who just want to know, okay, so what did you do and what really worked for you? So I, I was wondering if you would mind, I know you've really shared this a lot in the book, but are you able to just kind of Share for listeners who may also have issues with food and eating, like what what did your eating disorder kind of look like and what were the what did what was the key, I guess, not that there's a magic wand, but you know, like what were the keys to you effectively overcoming that? Like you said, I, you don't numb with food anymore. So what was the process for you to heal from that? Well, I will talk about I just I want to be very clear that I'm not an eating disorder um, coach or anything. So I'll talk about my experience and what worked for me. Of course. Basically, when I noticed that I had the issue with food, I was my issue was I would binge and then undereat or purge. So I would have these things like, okay, it's my period week. Everyone gets hungry on their period, and then 
well, it's like a week before my period. I can eat for that week. And then, well, it's Friday. I can eat on Friday. And then well, everyone binges on the weekend. So there are all these excuses. And I noticed that the binges were becoming closer and closer together. And it really kicked off when I was in that job in TV. And it was so awful. And they had this chocolate drawer. <laughs> so they routinely wondered who had been stealing all the chocolate. <laughs> it had been me. And then I'd, you know, eat on the way home. And then I'd eat to get to work. And then I'd eat throughout the day binge on the weekend. And then I would purge. I purged through, and I don't want to trigger anyone through this. I purged through exercise and laxatives because I actually tried to purge um, vomiting, but I couldn't work out the mechanics of it. And I laugh because I'm so grateful that I could not work out the mechanics because if I had been able to, you know, God knows where I would have ended up. So yeah, I would exercise, I was exercise bulimic and laxatives. And I remember I'd left that job and I was applying for another job and I just couldn't get through the job application without cake. So I went and got cake and then I went and got some more and then I went and got some more and I was sitting there eating and it would just be, it felt so mechanical. It was like those moments when you can see yourself outside your body, there was no pleasure. I just, it felt compulsive and it was just saying, get it down, just get the food down, get the food down. And I, I just had this moment of looking at myself thinking something else is going on. And I should say I also had the other side, which was then I would have days where I would um, so-called eat clean. And I hate that expression because I never use the word dieting because everyone knows that dieting doesn't work, but detoxing is okay. So there was all this language around it that I could use to deny that I was really just restricting food. And you know what that looks like. It's only fruit some days. It's not no flat, you know, no this, no that. And and the, the rules would always change. And part part of what I've realized in recovery is that in itself is a huge part of what an eating disorder, the role it plays in someone's life is that it's very distracting. It takes a lot of mental energy to to feed that, no pun intended. And one of the things that I went through in recovery was a huge grief about the amount of time that I'd lost. Like, and I, it still almost brings me to tears being so locked up in, inside of myself and the disorder that I wasn't progressing in other areas of my life. Anyway, after this cake binge, um, I was meant to go to a yoga class that night because part of the teacher training was you had to do a certain number of hours. And I went to the yoga class and it was a really crappy class. The teacher was terrible. You know, there were too many people. So I always think even the worst teacher, the worst yoga class can bring about an epiphany. But I was in the class and I thought, I've just got to really feel what the food is doing to my body. If I can really connect to those sensations in my body, I won't, I'll stop eating. And I tried everything to stop eating. And I thought that mindfulness, mindfulness will make me stop eating. Sorry, Cass, I know you love mindfulness. I do. (laughs) And And it did later on, but I had to go through some stuff first. But I was doing the class and I heard this voice in my head and it was my voice, but very different. I hadn't heard that voice for years and it's very gentle and it just said you've got no control over this you've got no control and I just thought oh Jesus and I kept doing the yoga and then the voice came back and it said and you need help and that's when I was really disgusted (laughs) because I thought 
I went home and I just thought, this is just terrible because my image of people with eating disorders was, and look, I am sorry to everyone listening. I'm, so, I'm, I'm the worst person in the world, but my image of people with eating disorders was 12-year-old ballerinas. It was footy wags. It was women who were really vain and skinny. It was not, it was not me. I was much better than that. I, I didn't have an eating disorder. But I couldn't deny that obviously I did. Um, and I got online to look up sort of how to treat it. And there was a lot of stuff that I instinctively just reacted against about body love, body acceptance, all that kind of stuff. And even though, you know, I did have issues with my body, I always wanted to be skinnier, all that kind of stuff. It wasn't the huge driver of it. It was really much more mental. And this is where the addiction side came in that it was, for me, the eating disorder was really about numbing. And I wasn't aware of any of this until I'd got into recovery what function it served. Um, but it would be a comfort. It would be. It would help me when I was happy. It would help me when I was upset. It was really just about shutting down all feelings. And so I, I somehow knew that getting counselling around body image and, and mindfully eating food wouldn't help me. And somehow I stumbled onto some research that suggested that people who were in group support therapy along the lines of Alcoholics Anonymous, but for people with food issues, um, had a pretty good recovery rate. And I should just mention there's a few different 12-step groups for eating disorders and some are quite strict, some are less strict. And it's really, I found the one that worked for me. So I'm not going to kind of advocate any particular one. But I looked it up and and there was a meeting in a few days. This is when we still had in-person meetings, a 12-step meeting. And I just thought I'm going to go. And I binged until that meeting started, like literally the moment I got on the tram (laughs) to go to the meeting. And I had to wear my, I say in the book, I had to wear my fat, fat pants because my normal fat pants (laughs) didn't fit anymore. And I got to the meeting and I hated it. Like, I don't know if anyone has ever been in 12-step listening, but there were all these slogans on the wall and all these people smiling at me in this horrible patronising way and, you know, the bad coffee. And it felt like something from some sitcom. It was so humiliating. And I just wanted to disappear they started talking, they did the meeting format. I thought, my God, this is a cult because it mentioned God at one point. I thought, I just want to be here to learn how to deal with this. I could do this in three days um, and then I'm out of here. Like you crazy people can sit around talking, but I'm, I'm not coming back, sayonara. Anyway, and then one by one people started talking and they told my story and it was it was shocking and I had that feeling of, when you've lost control in that I was hearing things that I needed to hear that I didn't want to hear. I didn't want to recognise myself in these stories. And what was interesting about the eating disorder, the 12-step group I was in, is that it's overeaters, it's undereaters, it's bulimics, it's anorexics. It doesn't matter what you look like, what size you are. It's the fact that you have that you use food, whether that's too much or not enough or purging. It's all the same kind of behaviour, which I really liked because it wasn't 
because it meant that you could recognise yourself in people even if their disorder looked a bit different to yours. And there was no sense of being better than someone because their their one manifested in weight gain whereas someone else's was in weight loss, you know. It was all treated as, as a disorder. And then I, it was my turn to share and I just, I just cried. Like, and I think that was the first moment of surrender of of letting go that radical dropping of your ego because you're, you're out of answers. You've got nothing left. And I left there still, I cannot describe the shame. I thought no one is ever going to know that I was in this room. And then I wrote a book about it. <laughs> and it was a slow process because I, I did go back the next week because I was still struggling. And just that sense of recognising myself in other people's stories was enough to get me back. And now I recognise that's a huge part of the 12-step recovery model is that recognition in fellow addicts of your story and, and without judgement and that you're being seen without judgement. And there was also what kept me going back was no one was telling me what to do. You have to do this, this and this in order to recover. There was this idea that you take what you want and then leave the rest so you come to it in your own time. And so gradually over the months I kept going and I started to slowly work the program. And I am someone who hates being told what to do, you know, reacts against authority really rebels against that stuff but I was so desperate like they call it the gift of desperation and there was I guess there's about there's three different kind of ways that you work the program so one way is that you use the tools of recovery which is using the phone talking to other members journaling reading the literature um, talking to a sponsor so when those food urges or any addictive craving comes up, you've got another tool to replace it. You're not just sitting there like they call it white knuckling, gripping the chair. And, and so I started using the tools and one of the tools was, and this is specific to eating disorders, was about identifying your trigger foods. So the foods that would trigger you to binge. And for me, there was no question that that was sugar. And I should just divert here to say because I think this might be quite common with people with eating disorders and some people might get something out of it and other people won't. But I did go to a dietitian to get some kind of eating plan, like a basic, you know, you need this much carbohydrate, you need this much whatever. And she was, you know, she was at a very reputable place and she was um, a self-styled, you know, eating disorder teacher, I guess. And she looked at me with such pity when I told her my story and a pity that I did not appreciate, I must say. And she said to me, you know, we want to get you to a point where you can eat the cake, where you can eat the pizza, where you can eat all those those foods that you are scared of and they won't bite you. And what I want you to do is I really want you to go home and, and when your partner brings home the pizza, like get a knife and fork, you know, your best cutlery, your best china and really enjoy the pizza. <laughs> and then, and, and you know, and she'd say, you know, what's life without a slice of birthday cake? You know, we want you to intuitively know what your body needs and if you let there's no nothing off limit. And, man, I was on a free-for-all after that. So so the next time my partner brought home pizza, I was just like, yep, this is great. And um, I intuitively ate, you know, the blueberries in blueberry muffins and then intuitively needed a packet of chips to kind of to, to top it off and then intuitively needed a Coke. 
And I, I don't mean to like ridicule it because I do think intuitive eating works for some people, but my intuition was off. Like my intuition was off like a heroin addict's like, you know, I really could go, <laughs> go something right now. So I recognised that I had to stop. I had to, to use another tool. So my um, 12-step program had um, the idea that you would create a food plan that worked for you. They don't tell you what to eat, but they do say identify your binge foods and that's it. You just don't have them. So I cut out sugar and definitely there was withdrawals. Definitely there was, you know, that was a rough road, but you use the tools of recovery to kind of get through. And I mean, I would like to say that I recovered straight away, but there was there were there were slips along the way. It, I didn't get there overnight. And this was where having a sponsor really helped because she would say to me, in the past, if I binge or if I'd um, break a diet, I would just say, oh, well, screw it. I'm just going to go go all out and then tomorrow I will start again. And she just kept saying, she used the metaphor of a boat. If you find yourself drifting out from shore, just start rowing back. Like you don't have a tantrum, you don't jump in the water, you just start rowing back. So every time I would break and have a binge or have a bite of a trigger food. It was about cutting the drama, cutting the guilt, the shame cycle, which would just leave you, lead you further in. I'd make a phone call, let it go, and just come straight back to doing the next right thing, the next meal. And slowly, very, very gently, I started to find what they call abstinence, which is abstinence in eating disorder recovery is abstaining from your particular compulsive food behaviours and that's different for everyone and so I think traditional eating treatment uh, eating disorder treatment that's might be where it would end but with the 12 steps that was just the first step (laughs) there were 11 other steps and the other steps really dealt with the psychological mental and spiritual aspects of of why we eat and it's funny because 12 steps, I mean, and I'm not a 12-step guru, but the first step is different in all the programs. It might be I'm powerless over food, I'm powerless over sex, I'm powerless over drugs. But the rest of the steps are the same for everyone. And that is because I think addiction works in the same way for everyone, really. And a huge principle in the 12-step program is that it is a spiritual disconnection. And so it mentions God, but it really can be anything. It doesn't have to be like a Christian God or something outside of yourself. For me, often it's just my intuition, but that sense of something greater than just just you. Um, so it's really, it's not a religious program. It's just about that sense of defining and connecting to something that you feel can help you along the way. Yeah, and then it gets in the different steps, get it into different aspects um, of our lives, the way we relate to ourselves and to others. And I found it intense and profound and I just could not have done that without the support of the other people in the community. And one thing that I often thought early on was if I could um, not have this eating disorder and not, not come to this group, would I do it? And at first the answer was always absolutely. And now I can't believe I'm saying I'm actually really grateful for having had it because it led me somewhere which has completely changed every single aspect of my life. It's made every aspect of my life so much richer and I would not have got there without hitting that rock bottom. 
That was a very long answer to a very short question. I feel like we could wrap up this podcast now and that would be a great episode because you've just hit on every single thing that I know that's like so many questions that people would ask. You have just answered them all. And I just wanted to say, so going back, I, I really appreciate you know, I don't think you need to apologize. I think it's really important that you are so honest about your own preconceived, you know, your own personal biases and the preconceived ideas you have about people with eating disorders, you know, because I think everybody has those judgments and like, that's what gets in the way. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Like, that's why you wrote the book. It's because you share every thought that you have, which other people don't want to admit that they have. And that's that's the path. Like that's what is so helpful. You're so relatable. Well, Kath, it's so funny that you should say that because one of my best friends is the author Kate Holden who wrote um, In My Skin. And Kate was on heroin for five years and worked as a prostitute, sex worker, and she talks about that in her story. And Kate, I'm just have to say it, she is cool. Like she is fucking cool. Like she looks cool. She's got these cool stories about what she used to do when she was on drugs, you know. And I'm over here like, oh, I can't handle Mars bars. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's a there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people in 12-step who are what they call cross-addicted. So you've got different addictions. And um I have other things as well. And I found that once one um, addiction goes, it goes into recovery, often other things might pop up. So it might be shopping, it might be sex, it might be something else, which is where I guess the program helps because it helps you recognize when that's happening and, and kind of come back to yourself. But yeah, so there's lots of cross addiction people in the meetings. And I just remember this one guy, I was in a um, food meeting and he was this labourer, like he was wearing his fluoro vest and he's like, oh, man, you know, I'm in NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous, for like smack and and i got to say, like, this is humiliating. Like I feel cool when I go to those meetings, but, man, coming to this one, oh, it's just the worst. <laughs> and I remember reading um, an account of someone who was in rehab in, um, what is it, in England, the Priori, the, the one that Kate Moss went to. Anyway, and she said there's like a real hierarchy in rehab of, of like who's the coolest and at the top is the drugs and then there's sex and then there's alcohol and then way at the bottom is like the eating disorder patients and everyone's like, oh, man, what are you even doing here? <laughs> So yeah, I I feel deeply uncool having this as my issue, Cass. It's but having said that, I'm very grateful it's not drugs. And I, you know, I just also wanted to highlight that you said that you went to this meeting and it was like, oh my god, and the slogans and the people and like this is not for me. And it's like I think that's what what most people would think, like how most people would feel, and that's what stops people from showing up, right? And and but for you to be able to share that you went and what you got from it and that you went back, you know, it's, it's amazing. Like it really is amazing. There is so much that so many people can relate to. And I wanted to point out too, like the point that you make, and I still think, I feel like this is obvious, but I feel like a lot of people still don't necessarily get this, that all addiction is the same. It's like if it's food or alcohol or shopping or sex or gambling, like it's all serving the same purpose. And I think there is that kind of, I don't really have a problem because I'm, because I'm doing this. It's 
or you know, it's like it's that hierarchy or if you're drinking too much, you've got a problem. You know, if I, if you're addicted to alcohol, there's a problem, but if you're addicted to work, if you're addicted to marathon running, that's all fine. Like that's all really good. Do you know, like, I think there's that as well, like these like socially acceptable addictions, but it's about that radical self-honesty about what, why am I doing this? And I think that's, I mean, the first step is really about piercing that denial. And I had huge layers of denial because I looked normal on the outside. And I think the kind of eating disorder I had is incredibly common where it's binging sometimes, under eating sometimes, not throwing up because throwing up is often like such a huge obvious sign to yourself that something's wrong. But I I was, I managed to keep a normal weight. I even looked probably healthy because those behaviours were balancing themselves out. And I would go to meetings and see people who were obese or anorexic and I'm not that, sorry, therefore I'm fine. And I think that there's a lot of high functioning addicts out there and that's in a way, you know, you're not lying in the gutter. So you think, oh, I'm fine, but only you can know how much it's affecting you and how much it's affecting your relationships and how persistent those thoughts are. And I think the mental aspect, how much it's intruding, is a huge thing. And look, no one wants to have an addiction. No one wants to have this stuff. Um, But it's that sense of desperation that will you know we respond to pain that's that's what will often drive you there and look I often you often see people in their first meeting and you just (laughs) I I recognize myself so much that look of horror and shock and like who are these crazy people and you just want to give them a big hug but you don't want to like overwhelm them like welcome to the club (laughs) and look you just hope they come back and Often they do. And it's it's often the people who surprise you who really stick with the program and have the biggest transformations. And they they have an expression which is don't stop till the miracle happens, which is it gets it does get harder before it gets easier. But don't give it up because, you know, recovery is just it is a miracle. I know I sound like a wanker, but it's such a miracle, it's a gift. hope that you're enjoying this conversation and realizing the benefits of positivity in your own life. If you are enjoying the show, please be sure to like and subscribe so that you get notified when new apps drop and head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating and review. So some of the questions I had for you, Alice, which you have probably already answered, I think the things that typically put people off something like a 12-step program, uh, quite apart from the stigma of it, to be perfectly honest, like, oh, God, I don't don't need that. Um, uh, Number one, the the God is a big thing. Got to hand everything over to God. And I think number two, or maybe even number one, is that admitting that you are powerless over whatever. And I know that you're very honest about all of that, your experience of that. So are you able to just talk a little bit more about how you were able to reconcile that for yourself to be able to continue on that path? Absolutely. Um, Well, I guess I'll address the powerlessness first and then the God stuff. Um, Just briefly, it's only when you try and give something up that you realise how much it's got a hold on you. So that expression, I can stop anytime I like, well, why don't you just try and see how that goes? Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, So when I came into recovery, 
I was really in denial that I was as bad as everyone else. And then when I tried to stop, I couldn't. And I, in terms of that moment of powerlessness, I remember I'd been resisting the second step, which is about God. And I, I do just want to clarify again, the God one is just a word. It can be anything. Um, it's not that you have to believe in God or anything. And I remember I'd just come home from the hospital. My dad was really sick. I'd been in program in the recovery program for months. I'd been in yoga teacher training for months and I just had another binge. And I knew everything about dieting and nutrition and mindfulness and I'd used the tools and nothing could stop me from keeping going with the eating and nothing could stop me from the plan to purge it all the next day. And I remember just lying on the couch and looking up at the ceiling and just feeling defeated. And I just thought, I don't give a shit. I've got nothing. I can't solve this. There has got to be something else out there because I cannot do this on my own. And if there is something else out there, well, fucking hurry up and identify yourself (laughs) because I need help. And Look, that's when I started looking at the second step, which was about came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And sanity is just how, you know, not not being crazy around food, eating sensibly, all that stuff. And I had a sponsor and I grew up the most atheist of atheists. Like atheism was our religion. My family thought that if you believed in God, it was because there was something deeply wrong with you. And now I realise that's true. There was something deeply wrong with me then you need a hand to hold and, you know, you poor little thing. And so I I sort of had a disgust about that idea, but I had that visceral memory of lying on the couch and I just thought I've got to try something because I'm going to die, like I'm going to commit suicide, I'm going to, something's going to happen. And my sponsor just made really gentle suggestions. She said, write a job description of what you would want a higher power to be and do in your life and then act as if that exists. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous, but I did what she suggested and I wanted it to be loving. I wanted it to be, you know, working in my favour. I wanted it to be forgiving, like, of when I was imperfect. And that's a huge part of my sense of a higher power now is that I'm not judged. I'm loved, flaws and all, even more for my flaws because I was judging myself so much for my flaws. And I just kind of started acting as if that existed. So when I wasn't sure I would about what to do, I would think, okay, so if I had this higher power, what might that suggestion be? And it would be something like go for a walk, you know, or just do the first five minutes. And one acronym, acronym that people have for God in program is good orderly direction. So it's not God, it's just good orderly direction, the next right thing. So I did that and I kind of, you know, acted as if this thing existed and um, Cass, like, I just don't know how to say this without sounding really strange, but my life just started to change and I couldn't explain it. Opportunities came out of nowhere. People were behaving differently. I was behaving differently. My thoughts started to be different and I couldn't, it, it wasn't coming from me like I was doing what they call the footwork the footwork is where you do your part so you make the list you act as if you make the phone calls but then it was like something else was kind of stepping in to meet me halfway and doing the things for me that as they say that you can't do for yourself and look I don't know if God exists 
I don't know, I won't know till I die and I meet them or don't meet them. But I do know that when I'm willing to be open to that and I do my share, far out, my life is a million times better, like indescribably better. And so I think because I had that evidence of working, oh, and I should say my eating disorder started to clear up like <laughs> as if on its own. It wasn't, it wasn't hard. Like it wasn't like fighting it every day. No, I'm not going to eat that. No, I'm not going to eat that. Like it, it was like the cravings started to be lifted and it didn't happen overnight. It, it happened very slowly, but I just noticed that I wasn't thinking about food, that I was and, and it was like when you can breathe after being in a stuffy room for years and you can suddenly feel that fresh air. And, um, yeah, I couldn't explain it. And it was really funny because then I started to think I was this really spiritual person who loved everyone and became such an insufferable wanker about the whole thing and I've got to tell everybody the good news. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and I've since calmed down a lot about that. It's, it's a much more personal relationship. And I, I will add as well, like, I think that if you have addiction, it never fully goes away. It certainly hasn't for me in the sense that I am in recovery from an eating disorder, but I still have thoughts that come up around certain things and they say that, you know, our recovery is contingent on that daily spiritual connection. And so for me, it's a daily practice of connecting to my higher power through meditation. And, you know, sometimes I don't believe in God. I just believe in my intuition. And other times I believe in, you know, and it, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. No one's going to tell you what it should be. And I think that's actually really want to make this point. Um, I think that that's one interesting correlation between 12-step and yoga is I found in 12-step, one of the things that kept me going is that there's no hierarchy, there's no leader. There are the founders of AA who wrote the literature and I guess the program originated with, but there's no, um, there's no head person. The meeting leaders change all the time. So there's not this cult of personality and, and I find that really attractive because it's no one's going to get off on me doing the program. No one wants to take my power by me worshipping them. Whereas in yoga, um, I found culturally it lent itself very much to someone being the head of certain practices, someone saying, this is how you do it. And I found that very, very off-putting. And I'm always quite, I certainly have teachers who I look up to, but I did see cases of abuse and um, experienced cases where people would try to, I don't know how to put this, get me to hand something over to them about myself in the name of spiritual progress. And far out, it just, it's pretty, pretty horrific that that can happen. And I, I think it's especially horrific because people do go to wellness communities when they're feeling vulnerable. And you, you really do. I wanted someone to tell me what to do and I would do it, you know, I was I was right for that kind of um, abuse, and I there's a chapter in the book um, where I go to um, I don't name it, but it's the Satchananda Ashram, and I was writing an article for a Yoga Magazine about sexual sexual abuse within the yoga community, and I found out afterwards that the the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse in Institutions had had submissions from people who'd been abused by Sachinanda and by people who worked at the ashram. 
And while I was there, I didn't know that at the time, but I remember having this really uncomfortable feeling of oppression and worship that you had to suppress your aspects of yourself to give over to the leaders of the ashram. And there were things, even things like women weren't allowed to wear clothing police were out in force, that you weren't allowed to wear certain things lest you inspire lust and all that kind of thing. And so it wasn't about people should maybe just not try and have sex with someone if they don't want to. It was about you shouldn't provoke lust by wearing a pair of leggings. And then I I read that the founders of the ashram had been cherry-picking young girls anyway. So it was that sense of not owning, um, that sense that you had to surrender a part of yourself for spiritual advancement. And I did an interview with some people who'd left um, the Shiva Yoga Ashram, which is another ashram in Melbourne um, where the leader has been accused of sexual abuse and is still running it, I think. And one of the survivors said something to me really interesting. She said, and I just I just thought if anyone takes one thing from this podcast, I hope they take this, I will never, ever trust someone who claims to be closer to God than I am. And it's not just God, it's someone claiming to have the truth and they can show you. And sure, there are going to be teachers who can teach you meditation. There are going to be people who can give you tools to advance you. But if someone has got a is a, is a bit tighter than God than you are with God than you are, that is fucking bullshit and run a mile because you can't get closer than you already are. We just can't already always see it. Yeah, good advice. And you're so right. You raise a really good point about wellness communities. And this is not like I'm all for wellness communities. I'm all for um, well, I guess I'm all for people wanting to better themselves and look at themselves and be, you know, self-compassion and mindfulness and meditation and be the best version of yourself. But you're quite right. It does attract sometimes people who are vulnerable and who are looking for a guru. And it attracts people who want to be a guru and who aren't always the most open-hearted, who are dangerous, potentially characters. I listened to a podcast, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, called Guru, I'm pretty sure. It's a wondery podcast and it was about um, a self-styled, you know, personal development leader running seminars and attracted a big following. You know, we know many of them, they're all out there, who ended up having somebody die in a makeshift sort of sweat lodge, basically boiled alive in a sweat lodge because they were pushing themselves, you know, that go into the fire, you know, and burn off all of your impurities and all of the rest of it, like quite literally, and actually died. And he is still, he is still out there preaching and practicing and taking people on, on, um, you know, retreats. And it's amazing when you, when you see that they're allowed to, but you know, there's that saying, like he who is without sin casts a first stone. And I, even though like the, the abusers are at the extreme obvious end, the thing that I really got from 12-step and yoga is that you have to confront those aspects of ourselves that might be abusive or that might want to hold on to power, that we all have aspects of that egotism. And part of yoga teaching, I find, is I have to be really aware of when I am wanting to be the guru on the stage, when I am feeding off my students' energy, when I'm starting to feel pretty good about myself as if the yoga is coming from me, as if they're my teachings, rather than I'm just 
they're coming through me and I'm adding my own flavor. And that can be really hard. I mean, depending on what's motivating someone to teach, there's definitely been times when I felt not so good about myself and then I would teach a class and feel like I had a lot of wisdom to impart. People could really learn from me. Hey, maybe I really need to start a business where I am like an influencer or something. And not not to be down on that because I think, you know, that's perfectly legitimate, but just that you have to have that continual checking in process about letting go and not not hanging on to that ego aspect of teaching. And I guess it's the same for, I mean, I guess, is it the same for therapists where people can put you on a pedestal and you've got to, yeah. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I remember that really struck me when I was, again, it was Tara Brock, who is a clinical psychologist, but also a Buddhist practitioner and teacher. She's well known around the world. But I was reading her book and she said that in Buddhism, like there is no special person and, you know, everybody's equal. We're all, we all are equal. That's what equanimity, right, is as well. We're all equal and that's humility and there's nobody better than the other and there's no hierarchy. And that she sometimes has to check in with herself when she starts finding herself going, you know, like somebody's late for her. I'm, I'm Tara Brock and uh, do you not know who I am kind of thing. She's very honest about that. <laughs> as her, her position, as she became more well-known, you know, somebody not having the meditation mat set up right or somebody running late for, you know, some session that she's running as she's live streaming around the world, you know, and that she has to check herself with that special person. And it always stayed with me. And I, and I do, I check in with myself too, because, you know, you have, I have a podcast and I have written books now and people look up to me and and learn from my work. And I'm constantly having to check in, like, I'm not a special person. (laughs) I'm only, I'm, I'm learning and sharing, but I've, consider myself a conduit, you know? But you've got a teenage daughter and I'm guessing any time that you need to be taken down a peg, you've got a daughter who can um, yeah. do that <laughs> Absolutely. For you. But no, you make a good point. And I think I think th- those aspects are in all of us. And and I, I guess, what, you know, one of the steps in 12 Step is about learning to recognise, you know, they call them defects, but those parts of your character that are a bit crappy and instead of um, trying to pray them away or spiritual bypass them, you just have to laugh. You just have to accept them. And when they come up, just be like, oh, yeah, there you go. You know, I want to be the best one in the room. I want to be better than everyone. And kind of forgive it and let it go. And that means that when you recognise it in other people, you won't hate them so much because you can kind of laugh at it in yourself. You can forgive it in other people. I mean, and I guess that's what the shadow work is. It's 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 recognizing those shadow parts and and just loving them, you know, not condemning them, loving them, and then they kind of they're not so powerful anymore. Yeah, I think that you've really just hit on Alice the key to all of this, and the key to, and I guess where we're all trying to get to is that complete self acceptance, flaws and all, like not trying to self improve ourselves away, you know, out of our brokenness, but almost like, and again, it probably sounds a bit wanky, but like embracing it, like it's okay. Because the quote that I love too, and I always butcher it, but it is something like, beware the subtle aggression of self-improvement. Wow. Who said that? That's amazing. Bob Style, I think is his name. I'm pr- but I say it all the time to people, beware the subtle aggression of self-improvement. Isn't that just? Because you're never fixed, are you? You're never fixed. There's always more and it's just, it can be an addiction in itself. It's an aggression against the self, right. There's a quote in um, 
in the book, and it's my teacher, Jorge, who is Andrew Moranis in real life. Um, and he's quoting some really wise guru who says, you know, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything and that is how the light gets in. And I'm like, oh, who's that? Is that Rumi? And he's like, no, it's Leonard Cohen. <laughs> but it's that idea that it's it's the cracks, the cracks in our armour and that's where vulnerability comes in, that's where connection comes in. And I, I just want to quickly say, I don't know if there's time, but I was in a 12-step meeting the other day and they're all on Zoom. I'm in Melbourne so we're in lockdown, all the meetings are on Zoom. And I was listening to this guy. There were people in various levels of recovery in, in the meeting and there were some who were, like, really happy and inspiring and some people who were really struggling and inspiring. And there was this guy who came in and he was just desperate. He was just so flat and he was talking about being cross-addicted and he's relapsed in this area and this other thing's come in and blah, blah, blah. And... You know, I identify as cross-addiction. I've cross-addicted. I've got a few a few things going on. And he just was the most inspiring person that I connected to all meeting because he was there. He was there. He was showing up. He was being honest about his experience. He was being honest about how he felt. And something about that courage and that honesty to show up as you are and just say, this is what's going on for me, just really touched me in that meeting. And I think, I guess that's the thing about we want to self-improve to the point where we, no one can relate to us. Like I can't relate to that perfect person. And I think this is the thing about the wellness trend, particularly on Instagram, you know, I just, I cannot relate to the people with the perfect body, the airbrushed images, the so-called inspirational quotes. And it's it's so weird because one of my, um, former teachers who is like an ex-gymnast, so she can do all those poses where you put your feet on your head backwards on a handstand, you know, that would that I sort of cringe, my back aches every time I look at them. And it was a picture of her um, doing this impossible pose on the edge of a cliff. Like if I was like, if you moved it an inch, you would be in the newspaper. And the quote was something about, just try your best, you know, no one's watching. And I'm like, are you for real? Are you kidding me right now? Like that is not, that is not, you know. So, yeah, I think there's this real hard line that particularly maybe influences, I don't know, you feel that you want to be inspiring and aspirational, but at the same time, if people can't relate to you, it's really just feeding your own ego. It's not actually helping anyone. Mm. So that's, yeah, I guess that's something that that wellness community kind of has to look at. Yeah. And and I think that's a good point too for anybody listening. Like I think it's always good advice that no matter how positive a somebody's message is, if it gets to the point that it's making you feel bad, then it's okay to unfollow. And no disrespect because somebody else will be getting what they need from that person or, or, you know, at at a different point. But, you know, I learned that early on, you know, years ago, I directed a client of mine to a particular website or a person who was a parenting expert, you know, and, and she had a lot of great tools and great advice. And, and I found myself often referring people to her work and they often learned a lot and they gained a lot. But if, but at one point, a client came back to me and said I had to unsubscribe from the emails because it was making me feel worse about all of my own, like, because I wasn't 
able to, you know, and that's something we have to sort of look at in ourselves too. Like I just found it was too positive all the time. There was no allowance for the fact that that sometimes you're not going to get it right and that's okay. You know, you're not always going to be the most present, calm, peaceful parent. I mean, that no teacher, whether you're the student or the teacher, you're never going to get that balance right for every single person. Some people will find you too positive. Some people will find you too whatever. So as long as you're true to yourself, you kind of can't go wrong. Um, yeah, and, and, and it comes back, I think, to that saying, take what you like and leave the rest. There are definitely teachers who I find have wonderful things um, to say, particularly the American teachers do this a lot. They're a lot glossier than the Australian teachers. I don't know if you find that, Cass, but I find that that gloss and that perennial upbeatness can kind of get to me after a while. And then I just remind myself, they're not bad, they're not wrong. Just take the lessons that they've got that I like and then just leave all the other stuff. I don't have to take that on too. Yeah. I think that you'd make a great influencer, Alice. I think that you'd be really, like, you should... (laughs) You should start a bad yoga Instagram account and just share your relatable, humorous, hilarious life advice because you have so much to share. I should. (laughs) I want to, I just want to ask you too, there are a lot of people in lockdown who have been in lockdown for about 70 gazillion bloody months and uh, really struggling. Everybody's over it. And this is a time when people's issues can come to the surface. You know, we know that alcoholism is on the rise. You know, we know that people are stuck at home. If you've got some sort of crutch, it's probably, you know, (laughs) out of control for a lot of people at the moment. So if somebody's listening to this and they're going, maybe this is what I need to jump into one of these communities where I can get some support. I mean, you know, it might be food, it might be alcohol, it might be, I don't know, maybe you can't answer the question, but how do people go about finding those services when they're stuck at home in lockdown? Yeah, look, I think I can only speak from my own experience and and my experience is with 12-step. That's where I go for all my addiction needs. (laughs) Um, And I think it's just Mm. identify what what the issue is, you know. Is it spending too much? Is it whatever it is? Um, Is it obsession with a person? Um, Is it codependence? And, you know, just Google Codependence Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous. They've got so, that's the one blessing of lockdown is there are so many meetings online all the time, all day long. And just jump into a Zoom meeting. You can have your camera off and just listen, see if it's for you. And I I would say they say try six meetings. And I heard six meetings and I was like, there's no way. But different meetings have a really different vibe. So if you go to one and it just doesn't feel quite right, stick it out, go to a few different meetings, give it a little while before you decide if it's right for you and just show up. All you have to do is show up. Alice, you are a gem. I'm so happy that we had the opportunity. We've been trying to do this since June. You're a gem. I'm so so glad (laughs) that we finally made it happen. Yeah, we just had an earthquake knock out my internet. (laughs) We've had no, no end of challenges, but we're here and I am so grateful to you for everything that you have shared today. Thank you so much. And please, everybody go out and buy Bad Yogi. It's a couple of years old now, so it's probably not at the top of the bestseller list anymore. So let's revive it, um, get some more um, sales <laughs> going <laughs> because it is so worth a read. Thanks, Alice. Cass, you're at gym. Thank you. Alice's memoir, of course, is called Bad Yogi. And I hope that by now you've already added it to your next online shopping order. Give it to everybody you know for a Christmas present. You will love it. I know you won't regret it. 
If this episode has raised any issues for you, remember you can call the Butterfly Foundation National Helpline on 1-800-ED-HOPE. That's 1-800-334673. Or as Alice said, there is an online recovery meeting for just about anything, just a quick Google search away. It's safe, anonymous and accessible, of course, from the comfort and privacy of your own home. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Crappy to Happy. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts by pressing the little plus button on the top right or by hitting the follow button if you're listening on Spotify. And of course, please also leave us a rating and review as that does help us to reach more listeners. I can't wait to chat with you on the next episode of Crappy to Happy. Listener.